0: chapter ten part two of a history of american christianity by leonard wolsey bacon this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by k hand chapter ten part two the eve of the great awakening in the year seventeen thirty the total population of pennsylvania was estimated by governor gordon at forty nine thousand in the less than fifty years since the colony was settled it had outstripped all the older colonies and philadelphia its chief town continued to be by far the most important port for the landing of immigrants the original quaker influence was still dominant in the colony but the very large majority of the population was german and presently the quakers were to find their political supremacy departing and were to acquiesce in the change by abdicating political preferment the religious influence of the society of friends continued to be potent and in many respects most salutary. but the exceptional growth and prosperity of the colony was attended with a vast unearned increment of wealth to the first settlers and the maxim religio parapet divitias et mater de est a prole received one of the most striking illustrations in all history so speedily the society had entered on its middle age the most violent protests against formalism had begun to congeal into a precise and sometimes frivolous system of formalities but the lasting impress made on the legislation of the colony by penn and his contemporaries is a monument of their wise and christian statesmanship up to their time the most humane penal codes in christendom were those of new england founded on the mosaic law but even in these and still more in the application of them there were traces of that widely prevalent feeling that punishment is society's bitter and malignant revenge on the criminal. The Penal Code and the Prison Discipline of Pennsylvania became an object of admiring study for social reformers the world over, and marked a long stage in the advancement of the Kingdom of God. The city of Philadelphia early took the lead of American towns, not only in size, but in its public charities and its cultivation of humane arts notwithstanding these eminent honors there is much in the later history of the great commonwealth in which quakerism held dominion for the greater part of a century to reflect doubt on the fitness of that form of christianity for conducting the affairs either civil or religious of a great community there is nothing in the personal duty of non-resistance of evil as inculcated in the new testament that conflicts with the functions of the civil governor even the function of bearing the sword as god's minister rather each of these is the complement and counterpart of the other among the early colonial governors no man wielded the sword of the ruler more effectively than the quaker archdale in the carolinas it is when this law of personal duty is assumed as the principle of public government that the order of society is inverted and the function of the magistrate is inevitably taken up by the individual and the old wilderness law of blood revenge is reinstituted the legislation of william penn involved no abdication of the power of the sword by the civil governor the enactment however sparing of capital laws conceded by implication every point that is claimed by christian moralists in justification of war but it is hardly to be doubted that the tendency of quaker politics so to conduct civil government as that it shall resist no evil is responsible for some of the strange paradoxes in the later history of pennsylvania the commonwealth was founded in good faith on principles of mutual good will with the indians and tender regard for indian rights of religious liberty and interconfessional amity, and of permanent peace policy. Its history has been characterized, beyond that of other states, by foul play toward the Indians and protracted Indian wars, by acrimonious and sometimes bloody sectarian conflicts, by obstinate insurrections against public order, and by cruel and exterminating war upon honest settlers, founded on a mere open question of title to territory. The failure of Quakerism is even more conspicuous considered as a church discipline there is a charm as of apostolic simplicity and beauty in its unassuming hierarchy of weekly monthly quarterly and yearly meetings corresponding by epistles and by the visits of traveling evangelists which realizes the type of the primitive church presented in the teaching of the twelve apostles but it was never able to outgrow in the large and free field to which it was transplanted the defects incident to its origin in a protest and a schism it never learned to commend itself to men as a church for all christians and never ceased to be even in its own consciousness a coterie of specialists penn to be sure in his youthful overzeal had claimed exclusive and universal rights for quakerism as the alone good way of life and salvation all religions faiths and worships besides being in the darkness of apostasy but after the abatement of that wonderful first fervour which within a lifetime carried its line into all the earth and its words to the ends of the world it was impossible to hold it to this pitch claiming no divine right to all men's allegiance it felt no duty of opening the door to all men's access it was free to exclude from the meeting on arbitrary and even on frivolous grounds as zeal decayed the energies of the society were mainly shown in protesting and excluding and expelling God's husbandry does not prosper when his servants are over-earnest in rooting up tares. The course of the Society of Friends in the 18th century was suicidal. It held a noble opportunity of acting as pastor to a great commonwealth. It missed this great opportunity, for which it was perhaps constitutionally disqualified, and devoted itself to edifying its own members and guarding its own purity. So it was that, saving its soul, it lost it. The vineyard must be taken away from it. And there were no other husbandmen to take the vineyard. The petty German sects, representing so large a part of the population, were isolated by their language and habits. The Lutherans and the Reformed, trained in established churches to the methods and responsibilities of parish work, were not yet represented by any organization. The Scotch-Irish-Presbyterian immigration was pouring in at Philadelphia like a flood, sometimes whole parishes at once, each bringing its own pastor, and it left large traces of itself in the eastern counties of Pennsylvania while it rushed to the western frontier and poured itself like a freshet southwesterly through the valleys of the blue ridge and the alleghanies but the presbyterian churches of eastern pennsylvania even as reinforced from england and new england were neither many nor strong the baptists were feebler yet and though both these bodies were given signs of the strength they were about to develop the episcopalians had one strong and rapidly growing church in philadelphia and a few languishing missions in the country towns sustained by gifts from england there were as yet no methodists crossing the boundary line from pennsylvania into maryland the line destined to become famous in political history as mason and dixon's we come to the four southern colonies maryland virginia and the two carolinas georgia in 1730 has not yet begun to be all these have strongly marked characteristics in common which determine in advance the character of the religious history they are not peculiar in being slave colonies there is no colony north or south in which slaves are not held under sanction of law georgia in its early years is to have the solitary honor of being an anti-slavery and prohibitionist colony but the four earlier southern colonies are unlike their northern neighbors in this that the institution of slavery dominates their whole social life the unit of the social organism is not the town for there are no towns it is the plantation in a population thus dispersed over vast tracts of territory schools and churches are maintained with difficulty or not maintained at all systems of primary and secondary schools are impracticable and for one of these institutions of higher education either languish or are never begun a consequent tendency which happily there were many influences to resist was for this townless population to settle down into the condition of those who in distinction from the early christians came to be called pagani or men of the hamlets and Haydn or men of the heath another common characteristic of the four southern colonies is that upon them all was imposed by a foreign power a church establishment not acceptable to the people in the carolinas the attempted establishment of the english church was an absolute failure it was a church with slight exceptions without parishes without services without clergy without people but with certain pretensions in law which were hindrances in the way of other christian work and which tended to make itself generally odious in the two older colonies the established church was worse than a failure it had endowments parsonages glebes salaries raised by public tax and therefore it had a clergy and such a clergy transferring to america the most shameful faults of the english establishment it gave the sacred offices of the christian ministry by patronage into the hands of debauched and corrupt adventurers whose character in general was below the not very lofty standard of the people whom they pretended to serve in the name of jesus christ both in virginia and in maryland the infliction of this rabble of simonists as a burden upon the public treasury was a nuisance under which the people grew more and more resistive from year to year there was no spiritual discipline to which this petrielle was amenable it was the constant effort of good citizens in the legislature and in the vestries if not to starve out the vermin at least to hold them in some sort of subjection to the power of the purse the struggle was one of the antecedents of the war of independence and the vestries of the virginia parishes with their combined ecclesiastical and civil functions became a training school for some of the statesmen of the revolution in the general dereliction of churchly care for the people of the southern colonies on the part of those who professed the main responsibility for it the duty was undertaken in the face of legal hindrances by earnest christians of various names whom the established clergy vainly affected to despise the baptists and the presbyterians soon to be so powerfully prevalent throughout the south were represented by a few scattered congregations but the church of the people of the south at this period seems to have been the Quaker meeting and the ministry the occasional missionary who bearing credentials from some yearly meeting followed in the pioneer footsteps of george fox and went from one circle of friends to another through those vast expanses of thinly settled territory to revive and confirm and edify the early fervors of the society were soon spent its work was strangely unstable the proved defects of it as a working system were grave the criticism of george keith seems justified by the event its candle needed a candlestick but no man can truly write the history of the church of christ in the united states without giving honor to the body which for so long a time and over so vast an area bore the name and the testimony of jesus almost alone and no man can read the journeys and labors of john woolman mystic and ascetic saint without recognizing that he and others like-minded were nothing less than true apostles of the lord jesus one impression made by this general survey of the colonies is that of the absence of any sign of unity among the various christian bodies in occupation one corner of the great domain new england was thickly planted with homogeneous churches in mutual fellowship one order of christians the quakers had at least a framework of organization conterminous with the country in general there were only scattered members of a christian community awaiting the inbreathing of some quickening spiritual influence that should bring bone to its bone and erect the whole into a living church another and very gratifying impression from the story thus far is the general fidelity of the christian colonists in the work of the gospel among the heathen indians there was none of the colonies that did not make profession of a zealous purpose for the christianizing of the savages and it is only just to say in the face of much unjust and evil talk that there was none that did not give proof of its sincerity in virginia the puritans whitaker and thomas dale in maryland the earliest companies of jesuit missionaries campionists among the swedish lutherans Megapoloneses among the Dutchmen, and the Jesuit martyr Jogues in the Forests of New York. In New England, not only John Eliot and Roger Williams and the Mayhews, but many a village pastor like Fitch of Norwich and Pearson of Brantford were distinguished in the first generation by their devotion to this duty. The succession of faithful missionaries has never failed from that day to this. The large expectations of the churches are indicated by the erection of one of the earliest buildings at Harvard College for the use of Indian students at william and mary college not less than seventy indian students at one time are said to have been gathered for an advanced education it was no fault of the colonial churches that these earnest and persistent efforts yielded small results we discover a strange uniformity of feature in the successive failures always just when the project seemed most hopeful an indiscriminate massacre of missionaries and converts together swept the enterprise out of existence the experience of all was the same it will be a matter of growing interest as we proceed to trace the relation of the american church to negro slavery it is a curious fact not without some later analogies that the introduction into the new world of this direful spring of woes unnumbered was promoted in the first interest by the good las casas as the hopeful preventive of a worse evil Touched by the spectacle of whole tribes and nations of Indians perishing under the cruel servitude imposed upon them by the Spanish, it seemed to him a less wrong to transfer the infliction of this injustice to shoulders more able to bear it. But man's inhumanity to man needed no pretext of philanthropy. From the landing of the Dutch ship at Jamestown in 1619, with her small invoice of fourteen Negroes, the dismal trade went on increasing, in spite of humane protest and attempted prohibition the legislature of massachusetts which was the representative of the church set forth what it conceived to be the biblical ethics on the subject recognizing that lawful captives taken in just wars may be held in bondage it declared among its earliest public acts in 1641 that with this exception no involuntary bond slavery villainage or captivity should ever be in the colony and in 1646 it took measures for returning to africa negroes who had been kidnapped by a slaver it is not strange that reflection on the golden rule should soon raise doubts whether the precedents of the book of joshua had equal authority with the law of christ in sixteen seventy five john elliot from the midst of his work among the indians warned the governor against the sale of indians taken in war on the ground that the selling of souls is dangerous merchandise and with a bleeding and burning passion remonstrated against the abject condition of the enslaved africans in 1700 that typical puritan judge samuel sewell published his pamphlet on the selling of joseph claiming for the negroes the rights of brethren and predicting that there will be no progress in gospeling until slavery should be abolished those were serious days of anti-slavery agitation when cotton mather in his essays to do good spoke of the injustice of slavery in terms such that his little book had to be expurgated by the american tract society to accommodate it to the degenerate conscience of a later day and when the town of boston in 1701 took measures to put a period to negroes being slaves such endeavors after universal justice and freedom on the part of the Christians of New England, thwarted by the insatiable greed of British traders and politicians, were not to cease until, with the first enlargement of independence, they should bring forth judgment to victory. The voice of New England was echoed from Pennsylvania. The Mennonites of Germantown, in 1688, framed in a quaint and touching language their petition for the abolition of slavery, and the Quaker yearly meetings responded one to another with unanimous protest but the mischief grew and grew in the northern colonies the growth was stunted by the climate elsewhere the institution beginning with the domestic service of a few bondmen attached to their masters families took on a new type of malignity as it expanded in proportion as the servile population increases to such numbers as to be formidable laws of increasing severity are directed towards restraining or repressing it the first symptoms of insurrection are followed by horrors of bloody vengeance and from that time forth the slave laws have but one quality that of ferocity engendered by fear it was not from the willful inhumanity of the southern colonies but from their terrors that those slave codes came forth which for nearly two centuries were the shame of america and the scandal of christendom it is a comfort to the heart of humanity to reflect that the people were better than their laws it was only at the recurring periods of fear of insurrection that they were worse in ordinary times human sympathy and christian principles softened the rigor of the situation the first practical fruits of the revival of religion in the southern colonies were seen in efforts of christian kindness toward the souls and bodies of the slaves End of chapter ten part two